0: Thanks for tuning in to the Three Strands podcast. You're about to hear an episode from our Sunday morning worship service. To learn more about Three Strands, visit our website, threestrands.church. We're going to wrap this thing up today. I hope it's been challenging for you. It's been challenging for me as I studied it to dig in some of the Old Testament texts behind these sayings and um, to find out real truth from God about this stuff. And so I'm We're going to keep going with it and finish it up today, the last one that Jesus says. And uh, just to give you a little bit of context in case you're new or you missed a few weeks of the series. um, So we're in Matthew chapter 5. You can turn there if you want. The verses will be on the screen. We're studying through a passage that gets called today the Sermon on the Mount. Stephanie actually just read some of it to you today. We didn't talk about this ahead of time. I'll be reading some of the exact same verses she read just a couple minutes ago. But um, Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Just call that because a sermon is just a big kind of fancy church word for preaching, right? So Jesus is preaching on the side of a mountain. So they call it the Sermon on the Mount. And there's probably thousands of people gathered around him. And in that crowd of people is included a group of religious leaders, teachers of the law, Pharisees uh, in Israel at that time. And they were different than religious leaders in our culture would be. Religious leaders back then in Israel, they were not just religious leaders, they were also political leaders. They were also um, kind of the judicial system. And so they had access to their own troops. Rome gave them permission to kind of uh, staff their own troops and have their own soldiers. And so they had um, kind of a governance or oversee oversight over the judicial system, over the political realm, and uh, over all the religious matters. So they had wielded a lot of power, kind of a big stick And um, they could not just tell you what to do, not just advise you what to do, but literally punish you if you didn't do what they were saying. And everybody in the crowd knew that these guys had all that power and they knew that they were kind of the best Israel had to offer. They were the ones who were keeping the law. And Jesus issues this warning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. We've read it every week of this series, but he gives this warning. And I think it's almost like his eyes kind of met those religious leaders as he says this to the crowd. In verse 20, he says, I warn you. Unless your righteousness, righteousness is just a big word for right living or doing the right things, doing what God says. Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That would have been a jaw-dropping, shocking statement to this crowd. Because in their mind, nobody was better than these Pharisees, than these religious leaders. Nobody was more righteous than them. And so for Jesus to say, hey, you're not getting into heaven unless your righteousness is better than your, theirs, it would have been like, well, then I guess we'll never get in. And that was kind of the point. That their righteousness was never going to be enough to qualify them for heaven. So then he follows that up with these six statements. And we've been looking at one each week. These six statements where he says, hey, this is what the Pharisees' righteousness is like But I'm telling you, your righteousness has got to be better than that. It's got to be like this. This is what they say, but this is what I say. And and they were all kind of like jaw-dropping, mind-blowing as he goes through. And he's like, hey, you've heard them say you're not supposed to murder anybody. But I say, don't even get angry at anybody. How am I going to do that? You've heard them say you're not supposed to commit adultery. But I say, don't even think lustful thoughts about somebody in your head. What? What? They say you can go ahead and get divorced for any old reason you want as long as you file the correct paperwork. But I'm saying the righteousness God wants from you is don't even think about getting divorced. Don't even do it. They say it's okay to break your word as long as you don't swear to God when you do it. And I'm saying keep your word all the time. Let everything you say be honest. They say go ahead and get even take revenge. If somebody does you wrong, it should be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Get them back exactly the measure they've gotten you with. But I say if somebody mistreats you, if somebody demeans you, if somebody belittles you or tries to take advantage of you, just turn the other cheek to them and walk away and let all the vengeance stuff be up to God. He'll take care of it. These are hard statements. They're statements that if you are really intellectually honest, you'll look at and think to yourself, I could never do those things. I mean, how am I going to go back in time and get undivorced? How am I going to ever stop getting angry at people? I feel like I'm angry every day at somebody. How am I ever going to go the rest of my life and not have a lustful thought in my heart about somebody? I, I can't do this stuff. Don't ever lie. I feel like I probably lie so often without even knowing I'm doing it don't seek revenge. Just let people mistreat me. I I can't live like that, Jesus. That's kind of the point. Jesus has showed up here to to kind of rip apart, to tear down, to destroy their whole whole idea of self-righteousness. They thought they were so good. They thought they were going to get into heaven because they kept all these rules and these laws. And Jesus is like, it's not good enough. And I want you to know that people all around our community, people in this room right now, feel the exact same way as the Pharisees. They're not walking around saying, you know, I keep the Old Testament law and I'm so pious and holy. They're not saying the same kind of things the Pharisees would say. But it comes from the same heart. If you ask the average person in McCreary County, are you going to heaven? They're going to say yes. And if you ask the one follow-up question and say, well, how do you know? They're going to almost always say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Or if they've been in church a lot around here, you might hear them say, well, because I believe in Jesus. But I got news for you. You're never going to be good enough. And the devil believes in Jesus. So we better clarify what we're talking about or we risk being these same self-righteous Pharisees who think we've got it all figured out. And Jesus shows up to smash all that down and say none of that is going to be good enough and what God really wants is for you to come to him in tears and he'll give you joy. For you to come to him hungering and thirsting for righteousness and he'll fill you up. For you to come to him broken and humble and he will reward you. For you to take the persecution head on. Not fight back. But just trust him to give you a greater reward later. These are hard, hard things. But this is the way. This is what following Jesus actually looks like. It doesn't look like lying when I feel like it. Thinking whatever I want to think about other people. Doing whatever I want to do because it's how I feel. Now he's going to hit this last one today. And Jesus has to continue to address this idea that they think they're good enough. This, he comes, if you read through the stories of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he comes back to this idea all the time. This was like their, their number one fight. You think you're good enough, but you're not. Later on in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says it this way to him. He quotes from the Old Testament and he says, you hypocrites." Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. It's fake, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. And I just need you to know, we're doing the same thing now. We're telling people they won't be righteous if they don't wear the right clothes. That they won't be righteous if they read a different translation of the Bible than me. That they won't be righteous if they don't cut out the cussing. They won't be righteous if they don't have a certain amount of church attendance. And, and you're looking through your Bible being like, is that righteousness to God? Or is all that stuff like dirty rags, worthless? Can't earn our way there. We're, we're guilty of this exact same thing. Speaking like we're with Jesus, but living how we feel. Aren't we guilty of the same exact thing that 2,000 years ago he was fighting with all these religious leaders about? Your worship is phony. Because you say all the right things, but then you go out of here and you do whatever you want to do. Is that righteousness? You think you're punching the clock with God or putting in enough time with him, giving him your money, and he's somehow earning a ticket into heaven? Phony teaching man-made ideas as though they were God's ideas, as though they were God's commands. And so then he gets to this last one. It'll be in Matthew chapter 5. You can follow along with us in your Bible or your Bible app or on the screen if you want. In Matthew chapter 5, he gets to this last one. Let me read it to you, starting in verse 43. But you, you have heard, remember that's like code for they say, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain out on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. Verse 48, but you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. We're going to come back to that verse in a second. But I just want to kind of do the same thing with you that we've done the past several weeks here. We kind of answer three questions. What does the Old Testament law actually say? How had Jewish culture actually distorted that law? And then what was Jesus actually trying to teach when he issued these words? So we're going to do that. But I just want to start off with some common ground. Maybe we'll disagree, but... Uh, on a lot of things today, but I think we can start off on this. All of us have enemies, all right? Now, we don't all have, like, you know, enemies we're ready to fight to the death, maybe. But all of us got some people in our lives, if we were honest, we would say, yeah, they're kind of, they're not a friend, they're not a family member, they're kind of an enemy, right? And and the Christian faith is no different. We have enemies, Christianity has always had enemies, persecution, people trying to knock us down um, as a faith, and that's no different than today. You don't have to look any further than just about a year ago in Alberta. There was a pastor named James Coates who was arrested and put in jail because he refused to close his church down amidst COVID guidelines. And so he was arrested, put in jail, and, and, and that would be bad enough. But in the exact same week, in the exact same area, a man was released from jail who was a two-time child molester, was waiting to see a judge for a new charge of child molestation, was released from jail with no bail, and then that week molested a third child. Doesn't make any sense. The preacher that wants to have church is the enemy. The child molester is the friend. But that's what our world's done. There's an intentional effort to criminalize righteousness and to legalize unrighteousness. And and I don't know if you, maybe it happens so slowly you don't notice it. But there's an intentional effort in our world to take everything that God says is true and good and beautiful and tell you it's evil. That God must hate people if he thinks that. That God must be against us and a bad God if he thinks that way. But to take all the stuff that God says is evil and harmful and destructive to society And reward it. Enemies. We've got them. Everybody's got them. That's really what we're talking about today. The Old Testament principle seems pretty cut and dry. It's actually a quote that Jesus gives here from the Old Testament. So let's look at those three things. What does the Old Testament actually say? How did they distort that law? And then what was Jesus actually trying to teach us? You ready? So here it is in the Old Testament. It's in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17 and 18. Let me read it to you first. Do not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against them, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I love this passage in Leviticus. God starts it off and ends it by saying, I am the Lord. It's like kind of his code phrase for being like I'm the one who should get to tell you this stuff, right? Like, trust me, I'm God, I know what I'm talking about. And so here's this command in the Old Testament. The word to love our neighbors. Now it said as yourself. I don't know if you noticed when Jesus quoted the law they were following, they had kind of left out the as yourself part. I don't know, maybe that's just cuz it was too hard to like love other people as much as you love yourself. But I heard this floating around a lot in our world last several years, really the last decade or two, that our world would be better if people would just love themselves more. You know the Bible never once said you're supposed to love yourself? It assumes you already love yourself, that you take pretty good care of yourself, that you wake up in the morning and your first thought is, I wonder which neighbor's teeth I can brush. It's usually I wonder what I can do to make myself look better. The Bible just assumes we love ourselves, And this whole idea of like raising our self-esteem, thinking more of ourselves, um, just believing more in ourselves, garbage. If that were all true and pop psychology and all these pros out there are teaching all that, then why is our nation the most depressed nation on earth? What the Bible proclaims, what God says, in spite of what they say, is we don't need more self-esteem, we need more God-esteem. And that as we lift God higher and higher, as we make Him more and more important in our lives, then our view of ourself comes into alignment with what it should be. As we see Him as the greatest, as the only one who deserves our allegiance, we start to believe more and more of what He says. And my view of myself suddenly transforms from, I'm a loser, I'm no good, I'm beaten, I'm depressed, into like, no, I've been made in the image of God. No, I got value because the creator says I'm valuable. I am loved and I am God's child and you can't rip it away from me no matter how I feel because God is just that great. What we need is not to elevate ourselves. What we need is to elevate God in our life. And the more I obey him, the more I trust what he says, the more I internalize what he's told me and block out all the outside noise, the more I start to buy into the truth, which is I am valuable and loved and special and chosen, and I need that every day, and I can't give it to myself. But the enemies out there would pick that apart and say all kinds of things that would demean us and discourage us. And I guess it was just too hard to say they were going to love them like they love themselves, so they left that part off. But then I want to show you how they distorted this law. They really distorted it in two ways. I'll give you both of them. We'll look at them together in the text. But they really distorted God's law um, in two ways here. And both of them had the same purpose. The purpose of both their distortions was to take this law and to shrink it down into what they wanted. And that's exactly what we do with God's laws. We hear them and then we shrink them down into something I like better. Then we do it, and then we brag about how righteous we are because of it. I'll give you some examples in just a second, but let me show you what they did first, okay? So here's the first distortion they made. They redefined neighbor, all right? So in Jewish culture, they had redefined neighbor originally, away from what God intended, I'll show you, to mean anybody who is Israeli. Anybody who was Jewish first, okay? And and I'm going to prove that to you that archaeologists discovered some writings from that area. I found one that was like super interesting this week. uh, Written by a Pharisee in the first century when Jesus lived. Listen to what he said. If a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out thence. For it is written, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but this man is not thy neighbor. They had eliminated everybody that wasn't Jewish from being their neighbor. But then they went even further and they decided, well, you're only my neighbor if you're Jewish and you're the same class as me. And they started to act as if if they were poor people or, 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 or destitute or widowed or widowed. They didn't have to love them because they weren't really their neighbor. And that wasn't even enough, so then they took it even further, and they were like, well, you've got to be Jewish, and you've got to be kind of the same class as me, and you've got to be clean. And so if you've committed any sin, or you're involved in anything that's kind of shady, then I don't have to love you, because you're not really my neighbor. Story after story, the New Testament, like, dives into this. I don't have time to go to all of them, but we looked at one of them several months ago, the story of the Good Samaritan, where this Jewish guy um, is is, um, beaten up and left for dead on the side of the road, and two other Jewish guys come past, and neither of them will help him. The first guy is a priest, and he won't help that guy. Why? Because he was Jewish, but to him he wasn't a neighbor. Why? Because he wasn't the same class of person. A Levite comes by, a leader in the church, in the temple, and he won't help the guy either. Why? Because he looks at him and he sees that the guy needs help, but it's kind of like, ooh, he's dirty. He's cut up. He's bleeding. Laying in the ditch, not my responsibility. And what they had done was they had boiled neighbor down, as small as they could boil it down to, to really mean whoever I want to love. And I want you to know that we do the exact same thing we boil down the group of people that we think we're responsible to love. We shrink it down so small that for some of us, it's only like one or two people. My immediate family is all, we haven't done one loving thing for anybody that lives in our neighborhood ever. We haven't gone out of our way to do one loving thing for somebody that looks different than us, sounds different than us, smells different than us, makes a different amount of money than us, has a different skin color, has a different religion. They're all not our neighbors. It's just this small little group of people who look and act and think just like me. I can love them. And we make the same distortion. We change the definition of neighbor. And in using Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 as the basis for this belief system, what the Jews had failed to do is read two paragraphs further. Because in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34, God says this: "The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you also were aliens in the land of Egypt." I am the Lord your God. You hear what he's saying? You can't just limit it, limit it down to the people who are from your area, the people that are born the same nationality as you. No, even the stranger. Is to be considered your neighbor. You're supposed to love them like you love yourself. Here's the second distortion they kind of made of this law. They add, I don't know if you caught this or not, but they they added, hate your enemy. I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. And they said, hate your enemy. But that wasn't in there. They added that. There wasn't anything in Leviticus 19 about hating your enemy, was there? But they added that part to it. Now, I get it. This could be confusing. If you're here and you actually read your Bible quite a bit, you could be like, This is confusing because I feel like I've read things in the Bible where, like, God was okay with people hating other people, or, or people seemed to hate other people and God didn't get angry at them. And I can't look at all those examples with you, but let me just show you one in Psalm chapter 139, starting in verse 19. Listen to how the songwriter writes these lyrics. Oh, God, if only you would destroy the wicked. Get out of my life, you murderers. They blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. Oh, Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred, for your enemies are my enemies. Well, it sounds like we're supposed to hate, doesn't it? Stay with me for a second, because this is what lots of people do. They grab one verse or one phrase, and then they develop a whole doctrine, a whole uh, theology, a whole belief system out of it, right? But you can't take one phrase and discount the rest of God's Word. You have to view God's Bible as one big story. You can't just pull out a phrase here and there, because I can make the Bible say anything I want it to if I do that. I have to look at the whole story, and the uh, overwhelming evidence in God's Word is that while we have enemies, and while there are people we hate and who hate us, we're not supposed to treat them that way. See, the principle in Leviticus that they had recaptured and morphed and distorted into um, 2,000 years ago Israel's time was not that they would never have an enemy, God doesn't say, hey, go out and love your enemies and then they'll be your buddies. That isn't what Jesus is about to teach. We all have enemies. The goal isn't to get rid of the enemies, the goal isn't to overcome it so everybody likes you. The goal is that when you have enemies, you're supposed to love them. Even if you hate them, (laughs) even if they're wicked. Even if they take God's name in vain and they abuse all of God's commands, you're supposed to love them. You say, but they're my enemy. I get it. That's the point. That even if they're wicked and we don't like them, we're supposed to love them. See, the instruction isn't that we'll be free from enemies. The instruction is we are supposed to love our enemies. How do I know that? Let me give you just two examples God's word. Look at Exodus 23 verses 4 to 5. If you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey, probably not going to happen this week for you guys, but if you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey that is strayed away, take it back to its owner. If you see that the donkey of someone who hates you has collapsed under its load, do not walk by. Instead, stop and help. You get it? Your enemy. People would hate you. You help. You love them. That's what's being taught. Look at Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. If your enemies are hungry, give them food to eat. If they're thirsty, give them water to drink, and the Lord will will reward you. You see the principle? It's all throughout the Bible. It's what Jesus is repeating here. I get it that you've got enemies. It makes me think of the story in 1 Samuel 24 where David is fleeing from his life from King Saul. Maybe, you've, maybe some of you read this before. David's fleeing from King Saul for his life. King Saul's trying to kill him. And David and some of his men hide in a cave. And, and Saul doesn't know they're in there. And so Saul goes into the cave to go to the bathroom. I know it's in the Bible, I'm sorry. He goes in there to go to the bathroom and doesn't know anybody's in there. And David and his men are like, there he is. Go kill him. We could be done with this fight. And David won't do it. In fact, David sneaks up on him and he cuts off a little piece of his robe and he brings it back. And then Saul leaves the cave, goes back down the cliff, goes back down the mountain. David comes out, holds up the piece of garment and shouts down, hey Saul, king, I could have killed you, but I won't. You're my enemy, but I won't harm you. I'm only gonna do good to you. Do you get it? It's all throughout God's word. This is his principle. This is the Jesus way. So what is Jesus actually trying to teach here? Let me, let me read it to you again. Look at it with me again. Matthew 5, verse 44 to 47. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Then he explains what that does if you do that. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. Seems pretty cut and dry. Seems like a pretty direct point Jesus is trying to make. If you want to be like your father in heaven, if you want to be like God, then you have to forgive and love your enemies. Right? If you want to be like, uh, uh, like God, you've got to love and pray for your enemies. Isn't that what God really did for us? That's really the two things Jesus is saying to do. Let's look at both of them. He says, love your enemies, right? Now come on, use your minds with me just for a second. Let's just use some reason and logic. If loving your enemies doesn't have anything to do with the command to love our neighbor, then the command is pointless. If loving your neighbor just means that you love the people you already like and are friends with, why does there even need to be a command? We all already do that. Why is God commanding us to do something that everybody, even the worst of the worst, do? If it doesn't include your enemies in this command, then the whole thing is pointless. It's like a fortune cookie, it doesn't really mean anything. It has to include your enemies. And so that leads you to the next question, like, well, then who really is my neighbor? That's a great question to ask. And Jesus got asked that very question by a guy who was trying to justify his own self-righteousness. Some guy was trying to be like, yeah, I'm so good. I keep all the laws. I'll get into heaven, right? And Jesus was like, and he was like, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus is like, love God with all you got. And the second commandment is just as important. Love your neighbor like you love yourself, all the commandments of God, all the prophets, everything that's been written in God's word, it all depends on these two commands. If you just do those, you're doing the whole thing. And the guy was like, well, then who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story. And the conclusion of the story is to say, everybody's your neighbor. Everybody. Everybody. The ones you know, the ones you don't know. The ones that are poor, the ones that are rich. The ones that are girls, the ones that are guys. The ones that are old, the ones that are young. They could have a different whatever than you and they're still your neighbor. It's still your job to love them. But it's so easy to hate because they don't think like me and they disrespect my property and they don't treat me right. They don't love the same God I love. They don't look like me. They don't act like me. We have very different cultures. That's why it's a command. If it came natural, you wouldn't need to be commanded to do it. But it's supernatural, so God had to command us to do this. You might not like them, but you have to love them. Okay, so let me help you here. How how do I love my neighbor? If it's supposed to be everybody, how do I do it? Let me tell you what love is not. Let me tell you what love is not, okay? This would be a good thing to, like jot down if you, if you feel one of these things. Love is not a feeling. If love is a feeling, whether you're single or married, you ready? If love is a feeling, go ahead and pre-sign your divorce papers. Just go ahead. Because it's only a matter of time before you're not going to feel good. Before you're not going to feel fulfilled or satisfied or content. Just go ahead and pre-sign the dot. Don't waste any time waiting for the ink to dry later. Just sign the divorce papers now. Keep them on hand so that when it all blows up, you can just hand those in to a judge. It's over already. If love is a feeling, it's over. It's not a feeling. Nowhere in the Bible will you find that. It's also not a commitment to spend every waking second with each other. Goodness, I can't stand that. When people start dating and then it's like the rest of the world's dead to them. That's not love, that's control. That's what that is. It's not a commitment to spend every waking second together. It's not a a, a mutual exchange of making each other happy. Go ahead and pre-sign those same divorce papers. You clearly haven't been married long enough if you think that's what it is, right? It's not a mutual exchange to make each other happy all the time. You don't have to wait very long after the I do's to realize I'm not going to be happy all the time. That isn't what love is. It isn't any other of that garbage that gets passed off in our world. It isn't sex. It isn't my time. It isn't a feeling. It's none of that stuff. Here's what it is. You ready? What is real love? It's sacrificing myself for the benefit of them. Sacrificing myself for the benefit of someone else. That's it. It's a choice, an action that I take on a minute-by-minute, day-by-day basis to say, you know what? Not my way. I'm going to do whatever it takes to serve them. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make them better, to benefit their life. It's not whatever it takes to make my life better. That's selfishness. That's childishness. It's I'm going to do whatever it takes. If i got to fall on the sword, if i got to stand in front of the bullet, if I have to dive on the grenade, that's what real love is. How do I know that? Because I've seen it in every war that's ever happened in in, in the world's history. Brothers who come back from war loving one another the rest of their lives. Why? Because he would take a bullet for me. I know it because God said it in his word that no greater love does a man have than that he would lay down his life for his brother. For his friend. I know it because that's exactly what God does for me and then calls it love. God demonstrated his love for me. How? By sending Jesus to die for me while I was still a sinner. What did Jesus come to do? Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 5. What did Jesus come to do? To take me who was God's enemy and make me God's friend. To take me who was God's enemy and sacrifice his life So that I could have a better relationship with my Heavenly Father. He gave up everything to make my life better because that's what real love is. And I wanna ask our church today is that how you love the people in your church? Stay with me. Is that how you love the people in your family? That would all be good. But is that how you love your enemies that you can't stand? that treat you like garbage, that talk behind your back, that disrespect your property, that say things online that you don't agree with, that live a lifestyle that you not only condemn, but you know God condemns it. Those are the ones we're supposed to love like that. When was the last time you sacrificed anything for them? See, See, what I'm afraid of is I don't know if American Christians even know what it means to sacrifice for your faith. Can you even think of one thing, not one, like just, just, just one thing that your faith has cost you? Because Jesus is saying it should cost you everything. And I don't know that we can even think of one thing. Are we the Pharisees in this story? Shrinking down the group that we're required to love to just the few we want to love? Is that us? He goes on and says, pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because it's hard to hate someone that you pray for regularly. Look at the passage Stephanie read earlier back in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 10. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you're my followers, AKA your enemies. Be happy about it. I love it. Thanks. It's wonderful. Not because it feels good, not because it makes me content, not because it brings me mutual happiness, not because it benefits my life somehow. Be happy about it. Be very glad because a great reward awaits you in heaven. Remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted just like this, in the exact same way. This is the only way you can love your enemy and pray for your persecutors. This is the only way. You ready? If you remember, you're not doing it for them. Do you get it? You have to look past their shoulder and see Jesus hanging on the cross behind them and say, I'm doing it because he loved me so much. I'm not doing it for you. You don't deserve it. I'm doing it because I'm doing it for my God. And he promised me that if I'll do it, if I put up with it, if I'll endure it, he promised me that one day my reward will be great for it. I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for him. Do you get it? Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? All of his enemies grab him and they beat him and they're executing him. And what's he say? Forgive them, God. They don't even know what they're doing. I love the story in Acts chapter 7 of Stephen. Stephen is preaching the good news about Jesus and the crowd gets angry at him and they want to kill him. They grab him and they drag him outside of town and he keeps preaching the good news about Jesus and they're getting ready to pick up stones and stone him to death, which basically means they'd pick up stones and wail them at him and pummel him with stones until there'd be a death blow from one of them. Until one would crack his skull. till one would kill him. He knows this is coming. And the Bible says he looks up to heaven. And I want to read what he says to you to God. It's in Acts chapter 7, verses 59 and 60. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed... Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knew he was going to die. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. What? And with that, he died. Can you imagine? Everybody lining up to throw the biggest stones they could find and pick up at your head. And he's praying that God wouldn't hold it against them. what? Is that our faith? Is that what, when I say I'm a Christian, is that the kind of love I'm talking about? Or have I watered it down? Have I distorted it down to some little thing where it's like, yeah, I love my kids. I sacrifice for my kids. What? What about your enemies? Is it possible that the reason you don't see people surrender their lives to Jesus is because you won't pray for the people who actually need it the most. Because we hate them. What's, God, what's Jesus trying to say? He's trying to say, you're never more like God than when you're forgiving and loving your enemies. Paul understood this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, and then going into chapter 5, he writes this. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. And then verse 1 of chapter 5 says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do. It's the only time in the New Testament we're told to imitate God. When? When we're supposed to be forgiving and loving the people that are our enemies, like Jesus did. Imitate God in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love. Following the example of Christ, he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Do you hear what real love is in there? It has nothing to do with how Jesus felt. It has nothing to do with whether or not he was happy. It had nothing to do with sex. It was him sacrificing himself to make us right with God. When was the last time you sacrificed anything to make an enemy closer to God? Do you get it? Do you understand what's being said here? Can you hear it? Look back at the last verse of this paragraph, Matthew chapter five, verse 48. He ends it by saying, but you are to be perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. That's impossible. Do you get it? It's impossible. I can't love like Jesus loves. I can't, you remember from week one when I brought my, my bar, it's actually my broom handle, but you know what I'm talking about, right? E, come here for a second. Michael, come here for a second. That's you. Yeah. Hold that up for me just a second, if you don't mind. Nice and high. Not, not quite as high. Not quite. Okay, remember when I brought the bar the first week of this series? And I said, this is what Jesus is trying to do in this series for us. He's taking all of our preconceived ideas about what is righteous. He's taking all of our thoughts about what is good enough to get into heaven. And he's saying, this is all okay, but it's not good enough. Can you lift it a little higher now? As high as you can, as high as you can. Tiptoes. No, I'm just kidding. A little lower, a a little crooked, a little crooked. Yeah. He's lifting it higher, and he's saying to us, the bar is so high, you will never be able to jump over it. You get it? Stop fronting like you've got it all put together. Like you're so righteous and good, because you're not. You're a murderer. You're an adulterer. You're a liar. You're a divorcee. You're a revenge seeker. You're a hater. You can't be good enough to get over this, it's too high. That's the point. Okay, so let's, let's wrap it all up together for you. Ready? Jesus has been trying to teach us two things for six weeks. I know I'm, I'm pretty slow, it's why it takes me six weeks to get them, okay? But he's been trying to teach us two things. And I I want you to see both of them. It's it's all about the bar of righteousness. You ready? Here's the first one. He's trying to tear down my self-righteousness. Do you get that? In all six weeks, he's trying to say, you think you're good enough, but you gotta be better. If you wanna get into heaven, your righteousness has gotta be better than what they say. He's trying to tear down my self-righteousness. And he's trying to lift up. He's trying to lift up my pursuits each day, right? So he's saying to me, like, look at the bar. And when I look at that bar, what I should walk away with is, I can't ever be good enough to get there. But I'm going to try to get there every day. You with me? And, and every time I fail, I'm going to be like, thank you, God, for your grace. And every time I do something well and I succeed, I'm going to be like, thank you, God, for showing me the way. But I'm never going to be like, look at what I did. I'm so great. He's trying to tear down my self-righteousness and he's trying to lift up my pursuits each day. He's trying to say to me, I'm giving you the goal. It's what you should be going for every day, but you're never gonna get there. Don't think you've made it. Does it make sense? You guys get in you wanna switch arms? You wanna switch arms? Was this like arm day yesterday, now your arms are sore? You get it, everybody get it. That's what Jesus is trying to say to us in this series. And I fear it's so easy for us in America to get super self-righteous about how good we are and to stop pursuing God's standard and to shrink it down to something we like better. And I just wonder for you today, is there somewhere along that spectrum that you've been guilty of thinking you're gonna get to heaven because you're so good, thinking you're a pretty good person, or on the other side, looking at God's standard and shrinking it down, can you lower it down some, did that for you guys. Lower it down some and be like, oh, now I can do it. I shrunk it down to what I like. I can get right over that thing. I mean, I can't, but somebody who's athletic could get right over that thing. Right? Thank you, guys. You can go sit down. You get it? This is what Jesus is trying to teach us. Nothing fancy. Nobody's trying to pull your emotional heartstrings We're not playing some upbeat song to get you all jazzed up, get you to walk down an aisle, dance around in a circle so I can smack you on the forehead and convince you you're a Christian now. I'm trying to teach you the truth from God's word. That righteousness is something you can never get to on your own. And so you need Jesus to save you. But at the same time, his standard is the standard and I don't get to shrink it down, then do it and claim like I did something great. No, I fight for his standard every day, whether I like it or not, and every time I fail, I look at him and I say, "Thank you that you have been so good that you were willing to save me, even though I act like your enemy." Thank you. That's what grace is all about. So wherever you're at on that spectrum today, I just want to encourage you to have an honest heart-to-heart with God. And maybe what you need to say to him today is, "God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for all these years thinking. I could just be good enough to get to heaven. Maybe what you need to say to God is, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for taking your commands and shrinking them down to something I like better, just picking and choosing the ones I want to follow and then acting like I'm righteous because of it. I'm sorry. Maybe today what you need to say to God is just, I'm sorry. You with me? What if we were a church that really loved our enemies, not just the people we like? Can I pray for you? Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for our church. This is hard truth, God. Because if we're being honest, we all have to look at it and think, I'm a failure. That I'm not good enough. So God, I pray that you would take this truth from your word. And right now in our room, you would bless our people with the courage it'll take to act on it. The courage it'll take to tell you they're sorry. The courage it'll take to go out of here and stop trusting in their own goodness the courage it will take to go out of here and strive to obey your commands, no matter how hard they are or what we feel about them. And that we will have the courage to each day look at our failures and just say thank you to you for loving us anyhow. In Jesus' name I pray. Thanks again for listening in on the Three Strands podcast. If you've never visited us in person, we'd love to meet you face to face. We gather every Sunday 11 a.m. at the McCreary County Park Building. We hope to see you soon!